You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a money-making business by Alex Ferrari. For a free copy of the audiobook, head over to www.filmbizbook.com. Welcome to the Director Series Podcast, a show dedicated to deconstructing the work of some of cinema's most celebrated and influential film directors. I'm your host, Cameron Bile. Scorsese's forays into documentary had managed to stave off total catastrophe for a year or two, but he had yet to truly address the root cause of his troubles. The crash finally came during the Telluride Film Festival in 1978, where the swirl of exhaustion, prescription pills, and some quote-unquote bad coke caused Scorsese to quite literally collapse. He managed to make it back to New York and check into a hospital, where he was promptly put on bed rest when doctors discovered he was on the verge of a massive brain hemorrhage. One of his visitors during his hospital stay was his close friend and frequent leading man, Robert De Niro. De Niro believed in Scorsese, even more so than the filmmaker himself did, and arrived with Raging Bull, a project he had badgered his director about for years, and now hoped would be the vehicle for a glorious rebirth. Despite being majorly humbled by the visceral reminder of his own mortality, Scorsese was still reluctant. If he had any creative mojo left, he wanted to spend it on long gestating passion projects like The Last Temptation of Christ, or an early iteration of Gangs of New York. Not some impersonal boxing story about a dumb brute. After further reflection, however, Scorsese realized he did have a connection to the material. This wasn't a story about boxing, but self-destruction. By nearly losing everything, he found himself suddenly animated by the notion that he had nothing left to lose. He grew excited by the prospect of what could very well be his final film, a forceful, howling expression that would offer no considerations or concessions to the audience. If he must go down, Raging Bull was the opportunity to go down swinging. Once he was discharged from the hospital, Scorsese went with De Niro to the Caribbean island of St. Martin, not for rest and relaxation, but to hammer out how they would adopt Jake LaMotta's autobiographical book about the rise and fall of a champion boxer. Scorsese's frequent co-writer, Mardik Martin, performed the first pass on the screenplay, which was received as a disappointingly conventional biopic. Paul Schrader, the writer of Taxi Driver, was subsequently approached to write his take on the material. Though he was in the midst of production on Hardcore, an early directorial effort of his own, Schrader possessed the bandwidth necessary to see Raging Bull through a different lens. He restructured a narrative about a singular figure into the story of two brothers, which offered the benefit of injecting a tactile sense of humanity into Martin's rather clinical progression of linear events. Though his contributions were valuable, Schrader's tenure was not long-lived. He had tried to set aside his frustrations over how Taxi Driver's success was credited to the collaboration of Scorsese and De Niro, and not necessarily himself. But they would ultimately resurface as those dreaded creative differences. Before leaving, however, Schrader had one last message for Scorsese. If Raging Bull was to be a success, he had to, quote, pull it from his guts. He had to rediscover the animating spirit that fueled the uncompromising power of Mean Streets. You fuck my wife. What?! You fuck my wife. How could you ask me a question like that? How could you ask me? I'm your brother. You ask me that? Where do you get your balls big enough to ask me that? Just tell me. 
Raging Bull details the glorious rise and humiliating fall of champion boxer Jake LaMotta, a relentless fighter whose dreams nonetheless exceed his grasp. For all his prowess in the ring, his killer right hook can't solve the problems that come with fame and success. His focus is derailed by increasingly complicated relationships with his wife and his brother-slash-manager, Joey, and is further consumed by an extramarital romance with Vicky, a younger girl from the neighborhood. Soon enough, his beer gut catches up with his inflated ego, and the flabby complacency bred by his success makes for an early retirement in Miami that's anything but restful. In his fourth collaboration with Scorsese, Robert De Niro delivers a soaring, transformative performance that quite forcefully argues for itself as the best of his career, an argument further reinforced by the Academy bestowing him with the Oscar for Best Actor. De Niro doesn't so much immerse himself in the role of Jake LaMotta as he becomes possessed by him, effortlessly channeling the Bronx Bull's brutish charisma and explosive fury. As a violent, egomaniacal philanderer, Jake LaMotta could hardly be called a likable protagonist, but De Niro nevertheless imbues the character with a relatable pathos that serves as a mirror reflecting our own ambitions and the lengths at which we might go to achieve them. His extensive preparation exceeds that of his previous roles, easily surpassing episodes like working as a real taxi driver or learning to play the saxophone by putting on 20 pounds of muscle and training with the real-life LaMotta himself for an entire year. Indeed, he proved so adept at boxing that he fought in three professional bouts, winning no less than two. His dogged commitment extends to the post-retirement phase of LaMotta's life, packing on an additional 60 pounds by jetting to Italy during a break in production and gorging himself on pasta thus establishing a template of self-transformation that would be replicated by similarly committed actors like Christian Bale or Jared Leto. Though De Niro's performance threatens to consume all of the film's oxygen, his supporting players manage to claw back plenty for themselves. A character actor who was on the verge of calling it quits after toiling away in obscurity for decades, Joe Pesci enters Scorsese's filmography with an explosive breakout performance. As a committed brother to Jake, as well as his duplicitous manager, Pesci's Joey is an anxious and combative testament to the notion that we mix the professional and the personal at our own peril. Like Pesci, Kathy Moriarty was a relative unknown until being cast in the role of Vicky, LaMotta's tempestuous paramour. Moriarty brings new shades to the Scorsese blonde archetype, the Madonna whore paradox rendered in white clothes and blonde hair, tempering Vicky's chilly beauty with a calculating nature that aims to outsmart the men around her by playing to, and ultimately subverting, their two-dimensional understanding of womanhood. Beyond LaMotta's endorsement and participation, Raging Bull's boxing bona fides are reinforced by its production under United Artists, the filmmaker-friendly independent studio who made Sylvester Stallone's iconic boxing picture Rocky only four years prior. That film's producers, Robert Chartoff and Erwin Winkler, would also produce Scorsese's film, having previously worked with him in the same capacity on New York, New York. This is where Raging Bull's aspirations to other boxing films stops, however. Scorsese would reunite with his taxi driver cinematographer Michael Chapman to establish a raw, unfashionable, black-and-white aesthetic that pulls from the impressionism of mid-century noir even as it captures the immediacy of documentary in its neo-realist depiction of LaMotta's life outside the ring. Day-and-date intertitles further reinforce Raging Bull's documentary conceits with a forensic level of specificity, as does color 8mm footage meant to convey LaMotta's private home movies. The boxing sequences shot on a soundstage in Los Angeles when the rest of the picture was captured in New York serve as the primary avenue for Raging Bull's brutish expressionism. These sequences inform Scorsese and Chapman's fundamental decision to shoot on black-and-white film stock as a practical matter instead of an aesthetic one. 
Biographer Tom Schoen recounts an episode in which Scorsese and Michael Powell, co-director of Black Narcissus, The Red Shoes, and other mid-century classics that stand as formative influences on the former's artistic development, were reviewing color boxing footage only to find the typical red gloves garish, even clownish. Black and white film, then, would render red as a menacing shade of dark gray, if not black. Though a great deal of the film's power derives from its striking 185-to-1 compositions, Raging Bull's subjective perspective is embodied by its artful combination of camera work and frame rate, staging the boxing ring as a smoky, time-elastic hellscape where Lamada must wage war against his own internal demons, made physical by their projection into the bodies of his opponents. A key decision in this regard was to place the camera inside the ring, whereas most boxing pictures would capture the action from outside. This extremely subjective point of view allows the audience to live the experience of getting pummeled into pulp, Lights dim and flash, an ethereal haze clouds the air, obscuring the crowd. Time slows to a crawl, only to ramp up again into a frenzy of rapid-fire blows to the face. As effective as Chapman's cinematography is here, the boxing sequences achieve their fullest potency thanks to the work of editor Thelma Schoonmaker, reuniting with Scorsese after their collaboration on Who's That Knocking at My Door 13 years prior. Schoonmaker has been such a reliable and present collaborator throughout Scorsese's body of work that it's unthinkable she had no part in early classics like Mean Streets or Taxi Driver. However, Scorsese's ascent and subsequent catapulting into union production had the unfortunate byproduct of barring him from working with Schoonmaker, who was ineligible to join the Editor's Guild because she was a woman. Schoonmaker's work on Raging Bull, then, makes for a forceful articulation of why the Guild's stance on women had been so blatantly erroneous. Indeed, there really is no counter-argument when Exhibit A is your gleaming new Oscar statue. With the exception of Taxi Driver, Scorsese's films up to this point had largely foregone an original score in favor of pre-existing recordings. Raging Bull continues this approach with an eclectic mix of tunes from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s that fleshes out the overall period. Raging Bull also uses classical music to sublime, expressionistic effect, leveraging the poignant melancholy of the intermezzo from Cavalleria Rusticana against slow-motion footage of Lamada alone in the ring. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Rendered in distant silhouette against a smoky background, his figure assumes an air of mournful elegance when paired with the lushly romantic swell of strings. More powerful than its music, however, is Raging Bull's masterful use of silence. Key sequences like Lamada's final fight against Sugar Ray demonstrate how the absence of sound can be just as effective in communicating a character's interior psyche. Though Scorsese's general distaste for such a violent sport as boxing initially dissuaded him from making the film, his subsequent explorations into the psyche of Jake LaMotta would cause him to realize that he and the character were much more alike than surface details might let on. The archetypical Scorsese protagonist is a reflection of the filmmaker himself, both saint and sinner, living by a pre-established code of principles despite associating with thugs, gangsters, or other criminals. Though he earns his keep through mostly legitimate means, Jake LaMotta is no exception to this rule. The character isn't outwardly religious, but he shares the Roman Catholic tendencies towards self-flagellation. Physical abuse is his way of atoning for his sins, whether that's voluntarily submitting himself to a beatdown from an opponent, denying himself sexual pleasure, excessive weight gain, or even aggressively banging his head against the concrete walls of a jail cell. That inherently Catholic conflict, caught between the fiery righteousness of the Old Testament and the hopeful promise of the New, finds a visual parallel in Scorsese's fundamental understanding of America, 
a place where immigrants remain attached to the codes and customs of the old world, even as they forge new futures for themselves in a land of supposedly unfettered opportunity. The color of Italian-American life, particularly the variety so prominent throughout New York, reinforces this dichotomy. As brutal as the boxing sequences are, there's a discipline, an impersonal order to their savagery. There's no such comfort in Lamada's home or on the streets, where the violence is inflamed by personal passions and no constraining codes of conduct. Scorsese is uniquely suited to capturing this flavor of urban chaos, having spent a lifetime immersed in the thick of it, just as Lamada had. The two are further intertwined by their affection for the gospel of cinema. One of the film's most surprisingly enduring scenes occurs right at the end, wherein a plumped-up, washed-out Lamada prepares for his nightly act at his club. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. His version of a pep talk is a recitation of Marlon Brando's I Could Have Been a Contender monologue from director Elia Kazan's 1954 classic On the Waterfront, a film that one could argue has a kind of aspirational quality for a bruiser like Lamada, whose identification with Brando inflates his ego with a noble victim affectation that shields himself from true self-introspection and growth. Though Raging Bull's visceral boxing sequences have rightly been celebrated in the decades since, this quiet sequence that of a broken man staring down his demons in the mirror and liking what he sees, has gone on to become nearly as iconic as the Kazan film it's referencing. It's on par with De Niro's You Talking to Me monologue in Taxi Driver, penetrating our collective subconscious before resurfacing in later works of pop culture, like the quite literal recreation to be found in Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, another rise and fall narrative about a showman whose greatest asset is his own body. Easily Scorsese's most pure and uncompromising work, Raging Bull fulfills the promise of his early success with a timeless classic that demonstrates his maturation as an artist. It is the vision of a man with nothing left to lose, convinced that this would be his final opportunity to express himself via the cinematic medium. Scorsese's artistic rebirth would earn his flagging career a stay of execution, and a swath of Academy Award nominations. In addition to the aforementioned wins for Schoonmaker's editing and De Niro's towering performance, Raging Bull was also recognized for Moriarty's turn as Vicky and Scorsese's direction. Though it has since accrued a canonical position as one of the greatest, most influential films of all time, one could be forgiven for dismissing Raging Bull as a mere runner-up on Oscar night. Academy voters could all agree on its inherent greatness, but it was by no means a safer choice than Robert Redford's Ordinary People, the film that would ultimately win out in the race for Best Picture. Raging Bull's eventual selection for preservation in the National Film Registry in 1990, in its first year of eligibility, no less, served to confirm what we already knew in our hearts. Scorsese's seventh feature was, and is, the true champion. Forty years later, it still refuses to throw the fight, relentlessly swinging to maintain its title as an undefeated classic. Thank you for listening to the Director Series. For a deeper dive into your favorite filmmakers, go to www.directorseries.net. The Director Series is made possible in large part by our generous supporters on Patreon. Please visit us at patreon.com backslash directorseries to see how your contribution enables the continued production of video essays and text articles on your favorite contemporary and classic film directors. Thank you.